welcome everybody to 25 Years Later, The Obsessions Podcast. Traveling back to the past, reliving pop culture from 25 years ago. Visit 25yearslatersite.com for more in-depth articles on your favorite obsessions. I'm your host, Connor O'Donnell. This month, I am joined by Fergus Looney from the WCW vs. NWO podcast and Andrew Grievous, the editor-in-chief from 25YL. How's it going, guys? Good. Good. I'm doing good. Interesting situation, as you know. I'm not going to talk about it, though, too much. Let's talk about old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on again. And doing pretty well, all things considered. Yeah, I'm hoping to have you for the whole episode this time. <laughs> yeah, that is the plan this time. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll we'll see how it goes. If you if you need to if you need <laughs> no to hightail it out, don't worry, don't worry about it. All right. Well, let's jump right on in with taking a look at the pop culture headlines from April of 1995. Bad Boys tops the box office. Drew Barrymore flashes David Letterman on The Late Show. Timothy McVeigh taken into custody for the infamous Oklahoma City bombing. And most importantly, Mortal Kombat 3 is released in arcades. <laughs> the console version, of course, comes in just six short months. And this is when Mortal Kombat felt flat for me. Like, I thought the series really peaked with Mortal Kombat 2. But it's surprising to me that the series is still kicking, still selling a lot of copies. It's reinvented itself several times. And man, it's 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 weird to look back at this odd time in the franchise. 3 is the one that I don't really remember enjoying either. One and two, I think, are really its kind of peak for for me. Uh, And then I just kind of lost interest in fighting games full stop. So it's weird. I don't really remember playing it all that much. Well, it's part of the reason why it kind of failed was uh, some of the iconic characters were not in the game. I think like Raiden and Scorpion weren't in there. Like they had to like come out with a different version that had yeah, them and they had the robots instead things right. like that yeah. which which is kind of weird because the the popularity of of this franchise it's going to be it's going to explode later in the year because Mortal Kombat the movie comes out this summer which we'll be talking about it's gonna be fun <laughs> it was really strange Mortal Kombat 3 introduced this influx of new characters as well which just never really caught on I remember my 10 year old self just thinking like eh, this isn't the gang that I really enjoyed playing with and the two previous incarnations and mortal Kombat three if it accomplished anything really made me appreciate the first two games more you have to know what the kids like it's it's the ninjas that we like it's not like robots and i think there was like a traffic officer or something like that like this isn't you know we want we want the goros we want the 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 deadly tournaments and the the scenery was just like regular streets and it, it just it wasn't the same so yeah, it's just kind of the problem with fighting games sometimes and the, the game industry in general. Sometimes they, they just they run out of ideas quickly. And part of it is, too, the game industry was transitioning to a, a different era of consoles. And the PS1, the the 3D world didn't really translate well early on for, for video games, for sure. Yeah, wasn't this, I think, Battle Arena to Shinden was the first 3D kind of fighter, I guess, with Virtual Fighter as well. That's what I honestly can remember around this time period so they weren't great it, it's hard because i i just i dropped off of fighting games completely at this point same yeah but this was also a great month uh for the rap stars uh jump their leading role careers in film so we got will smith and bad boys and ice cube in friday and I, I can't think of any other artists to transition to film can you guys think of anybody like before these two that like really broke out into like really successful film careers from like really successful rap careers. 
No, these two guys, Will Smith and Ice Cube, were definitely the predecessors here. Nobody before had achieved the kind of success that they did in terms of transitioning different into a different industry. And they really set the template for people that would come after. Certainly. And uh, would, would you would you guys say you're a Bad Boys fan or a Friday fan? Ooh, I prefer Friday, but I also really enjoy Bad Boys. Yeah, I, I, re- I revisited it recently and, you know, it's... Michael Bay's debut film, so it definitely feels like a Michael Bay film, but it's it's not like his typical Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, Transformer experience. This is right before The Rock, so it definitely it was a more enjoyable period of Michael Bay's career. So it was a lot more tolerable, and obviously Will Smith, like it's going to make every movie better at this time. Yeah, it's it's like they haven't really introduced all of the explosions into his repertoire yet, so he has to rely on actual <laughs> plot or interactions a bit more. I watched and it then again the plane's recently. Gonna go, <laughs> <laughs> These aren't storylines. They're special effects. I don't understand. <laughs> That's the same thing, right? Uh. It, it's, a cool, it's kind of got a cool spot in the history of action films, too. You know, when we look back on 80s action films, I think we all know what stereotypes they suffer from. And the 90s did subtly reinvent the wheel a little bit. A little bit more intentional humor, I guess is probably the best way to put it. And bad boys had a lot of personality. You know, the, the action was there. The personality was there. The cast was great for the time. It really was a great film. Yeah. And Martin Lawrence, I'm not a huge fan of him, but like, I, I, this is probably my favorite role of his. I'm um, probably just cause he has great chemistry with Will Smith, but it's, it's cool to look back. These guys were, they're both mainly TV stars and they, they had mostly minor roles in films, but so this was, both of them breaking out to their leading roles. And of course, Big Willie, he goes on to Independence Day and Men in Black shortly after this. So this really was a, a good jumping off Springboard, point. Springboard, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was forced to watch four episodes of Martin one time, his uh, his TV show, and never again. Did, didn't hit me quite like the, the charm of uh, the Fresh Prince of Red Feller, for sure. But <laughs> I think I liked Martin more than you did. I, I definitely remember it from syndication as a kid. Okay. Not my favorite show in the world, but I think I do recall it more fr- fondly than you do. We were we were certainly not subjected to Martin over here. That's it. It did not make <laughs> it did not make it to Ireland. That's Fresh Prince for sure. <laughs> I, I watched Fresh Prince, but not, not him. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, what about Friday though? Because uh, Friday, I'd, I'd probably say that's probably my my favorite of of these two. And I mean, Chris Tucker's amazing. This is really the first film that I think I I, I saw from him and. I wanted to, I wanted to note here because we're going to be talking about wrestling later. And did you guys know that D'Lo Brown got the head shake from Friday? You know, now that you mention it, I recall that, but I never would have been able to uh, bring that up on my own without your prodding. Yeah. <laughs> Gus, do you know the story? No, no, no. Yeah, so it's uh, when Devo knocks the guy out for his bike, and Chris, Tur- Chris Tucker goes up to him and goes, "You just got knocked up out." You know, he uh, he does this little like head bob and. D'Lo Brown's like, yeah, that's where it came from. I'm like, that's nice. amazing. <laughs> nice, nice. I already love D'Lo Brown. Now I love him even more. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, like, I think the, the charm from Friday and I, a movie that's kind of surrounded by like a short time period, like whether it's like a day or a few days, Clerks comes to mind. It's just a, a nice change of pace from like, all right, we're going to jump around 30 years here and yeah, then yeah. a couple days here. And the pacing always feels weird. But like these films, they always have like chance to breathe and they, they feel more real, I guess. And yeah. like, people t- always like to talk about like films feeling real. And like, I think it's the storyline like this that really kind of you can relate to. 
I think that's exactly it. it the, people can relate to Friday. Friday. The characters in Friday felt authentic. You, it felt like people that you might actually know. And it wasn't Hollywood's idea of what the setting might be like. You know, it, it was a movie that people could say, like, yep, I know guys just like that. Or I've heard humor just like that. These are people that I can relate to. And that's why we're here 25 years later still talking about this movie. The restriction behind it, like you're saying with the day, means that it has to be tighter as a film. You can't just add different bits and pieces. You, it has to be everything that's important to whatever the plot is. You can't just go, yeah, we'll just go have lunch or something like that. No, no, it has to make sense. It has to be part of it. So it definitely helps. In the, in the terms of relate, relatability, there's this one scene that I always do, or there's one line from Ice Cube that I always, it's just, it's such a throwaway moment. Uh, Ice Cube is just like going for cereal and he opens the cabinet and he just goes like, yeah. <laughs> and so anytime like I'm excited about like a, like a piece of food or something that like I forgot I had in the fridge, I always make the yeah, just like Ice Cube. It's it's an underrated uh, underrated scene by Ice Cube. And then he obviously goes in the fridge and realizes there's no more milk. And yeah, man, we, we all know the pain. Yeah, the struggle. The struggle. Well, it's time for a break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the wrestling world with WrestleMania 11. Time for a cup of joe and a donut. Twin Peaks will be right back. Thank you for listening to 25yearslatersite.com. For more exclusive audio, head on over to patreon.com slash 25YL. The $3 tier will get you access to our library of audio articles, plus two new audio articles released every week exclusive to subscribers. So certainly a weird year in wrestling. 1995 was a transition from the 80s because wrestling, of course, is always behind the pop culture times. And this is definitely a pivotal point. You have it right before the NWO and WCW. It's... And it's just a huge shift in talent around this time. So you have Steve Austin. He's an ECW. He hasn't quite signed. He hasn't signed with the WWF. That comes at the end of the year. And Triple H just signs with the WWF right after WrestleMania. He debuts. And then Mick Foley, the other notable jump from WCW, he, he doesn't sign until 96. So he's with ECW the whole year. So ECW really gets a jump. And uh, the steroid trial, it's over. A lot is happening and trying to find our way here with both companies. And, you know, WCW, we have this dark year with the Yeti and some just <laughs> really crap stuff with the Dungeon of Doom. So it's <sighs> it's weird. And WWF is just struggling to find their footing. They right. can't really find the star. They can't replace Hulk Hogan. So this is just it's weird time to look back at this. It's such a weird mixture of people on a card when you look at it top to bottom, you're just like, why are these people on WrestleMania? What, what is going on? Like, why? Oh, <laughs> why are the Harris twins on national television wrestling Alex Luger and the British Bulldog? God, horrible. Like it, WrestleMania 11 still kind of in that weird time period where WrestleMania isn't what we think of it today. You know, nowadays we think of it as a stacked card from top to bottom with the best of the best getting on the show. And to your point, Gus, a lot of interesting talent 
used to make cards back then. Um, the Blue Brothers and the Allied Express does not scream best show of the year. But back then, you know, no. there, there was a fair amount of filler in the undercard. And the concept of WrestleMania really didn't start evolving until, I don't know, it would be a few more years. But they always had that mentality of glitz and glamour for the main event. The undercard is just that, an undercard. And it, that really shines through here. Um, the smoking guns against Owen Hart and Yokozuna, which arguably might be my favorite match on the show, says a lot. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, <laughs> we'll definitely note our, our our match of the nights. But yeah, I, I want to go back to the sense of like what WrestleMania was and what wrestling kind of what they were really targeting around this time because this show really encapsulates the WWF going. Hey, I mean, they always push celebrities, but certainly around um, this show, it's like, well, we don't really have that number one star. So here's uh, Pamela Anderson and Jenny McCarthy and, and Jenny Jonathan McCarthy. Taylor Thomas yeah. and yeah. Nick Totoro. All, all huge, obviously. <laughs> yeah, all huge celebrities. Don't don't get me wrong. And, if, and obviously you have the football players, which is a weird thing in wrestling because like WCW w- would get Mongo and Reggie White. Who's the guy from the Panthers? Gus, I uh, Kevin Green. Kevin Green, so like they they have them just a few years after this too. So I, wrestling has always had this fascination with football players. The, those are the legit tough athletes. I, I obviously it's football players. It's it's typical. They have a short career, so then they transition into wrestling. So I, I get it. But mm. around this time, it was really football was really tied with wrestling, which is always seemed odd to me. Yeah, yeah, and the the history was there. I mean, there there was the battle royal at WrestleMania two with what ten mm-hmm. NFL players at the time, so there yeah. was a little bit of a precedent. And Vince just likes big, strong, tough dudes, especially big, strong, tough dudes that are celebrities. If LT had come to him and gone, "Yeah, I want to be a wrestler," he'd be like, "Sure, I'll do whatever he wants." <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll let's, let's talk about LT in just a second. Uh, but my last notes I had about this era, though, which was like. Really, kind of really cool to just look back on Vince on commentary. I still miss him on commentary because this is like when I started watching wrestling. So when he stopped commentating, I'm like, this is this is kind of weird. Like I have I always know Vince on commentary and he's you know, he's bad. His, his oh, this is unbelievable. And it's so cheesy and over the top, but I, I still love it. I, I don't know what a maneuver. See, he doesn't say like <laughs> yeah. I thought you would say one maneuver that a ton, but watching OSW like made me realize he says unbelievable like every three seconds. Yeah. It's <laughs> hilarious. It's between that and did he get him? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my favorite Vinceism is one, two, and oh, that was a close call. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that sticks out from this era of wrestling? I have I have one, but I, I want to hear from you guys. 1995 is just the definition of transition. You know, they they are firmly between two worlds, wrestling-wise. Up until 1995, looking at both major promotions, they were sticking to what had worked for them. And 1995, like you point out in WCW, they started to venture more into cartoons because they didn't know what direction they wanted to go in. They had the Yeti, they had the Dungeon of Doom, and they were getting away from that NWA old school wrestling feel, but they didn't know what they wanted to be. And the WWF also didn't really know what they wanted to be. They wanted a Hulk Hogan, but Lex Luger flopped. 
they didn't have it. They looked at Shawn Michaels, they looked at Bret Hart and said, well, these guys can go, but they're not the kind of guys that you can put on the cereal box and kids want to be them when they grow up. They were, for lack of a better word, directionless in 1995, and you can really identify that just throughout any given card in the year that they, the WWF had an identity crisis that year. And ECW was still very young that they, they didn't know that they will be copying them very shortly as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see how much they're pushing on their main event and how badly they want Kevin to get over. Don't think it quite worked, uh, to be fair, considering how all things go. Yeah, well, but. Well, yeah let's let's get into that right now. My, my, my last uh, note was going to be uh, finishers actually ending matches, which I, I do miss in wrestling <laughs> dearly. <laughs> So yeah, our, our main event technically is LT versus Bam Bam Bigelow. Uh, do you guys think this should have gone last? Uh, probably not. I doubt he'd do it now. Like looking back, I was like, I I, I listened to Bruce Pritchard's podcast, which is a mistake before revisiting the show. <laughs> so he, he convinced me. I was like, oh yeah, LT and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, they should be the main event. When I watched the whole show, I'm like, no, not even close. So I do like the old school feeling of having the the title match on last, but if if it's not going to be last, like that last match better be really really good. And LT and Bam Bam Bigelow is actually worse than I remember it. It's bad. It's not a good match. This is kind of a tough question as to whether it should have closed the show or not. There is a part of me that wants to say yes, that was the right call because nothing else on the card. And I'm sorry, Sean, and I'm sorry, Kevin. You guys were not a WrestleMania main event that year. You, you don't have to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I, man, watching Kevin Nash, I was like, okay, he's going against Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels is like the best. And oh, it, Nash, you, you, you know, just, there, you, there's a lot we can talk about with that match when it comes time. Yeah. But it, it's in terms of Bam Bam and LT. The media coverage was amazing. Can't deny that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, they, they did everything marketing and promotion-wise perfectly between having all of the football stars and mainstream media stars accompany to it. They created a WrestleMania spectacle. I think if you were to put that spectacle on anywhere else in the card and then have Sean and Kevin Nash close it, you get WrestleMania 25 syndrome where people fell asleep during Orton and Triple H when they closed the show. <laughs> on the other hand it wasn't a good match yep. lt got blew up you know he tried very hard uh, there is no denying that lt wanted to put on a good performance he wasn't a professional wrestler having a non-wrestler in the main event of the biggest show of the year is about as risky as it gets and did it pay off uh, i don't think we can say it can no, I don't think so. I don't, Bam Bam lost a lot of credibility for this one afterwards because he had to do the job. Uh, <laughs> so you're kind of ruining one of your guys that probably could have done something. And it's it's just kind of a bit of a waste afterwards. It's it's the typical WWF. I mean, this is what CM Punk was right all along. The part-timers just destroying your talent. So. LT, I'll, I'll do give him credit, even though he was kind of blown up. Like he does look like a star, though. He looks like a, a like a wrestler, and like his his like custom WWF NFL jersey, like that looks sweet. So I thought they did a great job with the presentation. That's usual with the WWF. I thought Uncle Dave giving this match a two two three quarter stars. I don't know. Like, <laughs> in my opinion, I, I I think I disagree. Like the the fans were up for the match in the beginning, but I think they quickly died and. You can see them. They head for the the parking lot like pretty quickly after the finish. 
Yeah, I mean, the the selling point was the two of them getting into the ring. You know, that's what you right. wanted to see. You wanted to see the pomp and circumstance. You wanted to see that initial face-off in the ring. I don't think anybody had expectations for once the bell rang. You know, at, mm-hmm. at that point, it becomes the car crash syndrome. You can't really look away, but <laughs> you also don't want to watch. The whole show, The what you were attracted to was, what is LT going to do on his way out? Will this match actually happen, or will some other wrestler run out the beginning and cause some kind of situation where it's a tag match? Or I mean, the intrigue was there as to whether or not this would really happen. And once it started to happen, the interest was gone. Yeah, you're not really expecting to go f- 10 minutes either. That's It's way too long. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of a match that kind of went pretty long was the uh, the Sean and Diesel match. I, I like how um, Nash said in a shoot interview that Sean Michaels intentionally blew him up, which I guess I can see. Um, <laughs> do you guys actually believe that he did that on purpose? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the same token, I'm like, Nash, what do you expect, man? You're the champion. This is WrestleMania. Like, you should probably step it up a little bit. So like, I kind of don't feel bad for Nash. And uh, his promo before the match, too, it was it was pretty bad. <laughs> it was bad. I mean, Sean, Sean definitely went into business for himself here. You know, there, there's yeah. the legendary kick out, which has been discussed a million times. Uh, Sean, whether or not he actually blew him up on purpose is debatable, but Sean was pissed. Sean wanted to be the champion. Sean wanted to be the main event. He thought this was his time. Talent-wise, you could definitely make a case for it. And he wanted to show the world, hey, I'm the guy. Did he do that in this match? No, but he did his best. You can see his anger with the treatment of the reporters. He flings a guy at one stage <laughs> for no reason. Mm-hmm. I think it's to actually so he can do a spot, which is fair enough. And he's like, I don't want to kill you, but he's still like, get the fuck out of my way. They <laughs> <laughs> they had too many photographers. I, I actually kind of like having photographers. It makes it seem like a big deal, but I understand WWF going away from it. Although I think it's long-term booking, Gus. It's you know, it's setting up bad the Hell, hell in the Cell bad, bad blood match, so. Sure, sure. It's uh, excellent, excellent work by Shawn Michaels. Uh, yeah, the, I think the match was pretty slow. They they told an okay story. It's probably one of the better Nash matches I've ever seen, thanks to Shawn. But still, like it's it's very plodding and it's the sl- sloppiest power bomb I've ever seen from Nash. Oh, it's so dangerous. His power bombs are the worst. <laughs> it's terrible. It's it's also really weird that this is the rare no title change at WrestleMania, and I, I do like that they do it once in a while. But it's still kind of like oh. You know, you, you want to see something different. And it's especially weird when you consider that the babyface won the main event, too. So they, they went all out on, hey, let's send the fans home happy with the good guys winning. Which, it's interesting booking, but understandable. Yep. Match got four stars, though. I, I don't know if I quite agree with that one. I definitely don't. Not four. Definitely not four. <laughs> yeah, not four. It's not bad, but yeah, it's definitely not four. So, yeah, we could talk about this card all, all day, but uh, let's uh, wrap it up with our match of the night and MVPs. Uh, Andrew, you kind of said what your match of the night was. What what was your MVP then? <sighs> or who is your I MVP? Mean, I guess my MVP is Owen Hart. I, and that I am mm. a huge Owen Hart fan, but this match was certainly not his finest hour. I think it more just speaks to how little I thought of this card. 
MVP has got to be Bob Backlund's commitment to the bit. Oh, oh. because that match always bugged the hell out of me as a kid. <laughs> Roddy Piper's, what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> yeah, oh. he doesn't even quit. <laughs> but um, yeah. he's MVP for that. But Diesel and Sean is probably still my favorite match because there's it's a very low bar to clear in this on this pay per view. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably say that's my match of the night as well. Andrew, I, I, Owen Hart was actually my MVP that I wrote down before because he made everybody look great in that match. He filled enough time for Yoko, who obviously could not work at that point. He was very, very big and heavy that he needed somebody like Owen Hart. And it was his first title, so it was really cool to see him. I think he was just genuinely happy. Obviously, that's him being his character, being yeah. overly happy and excited. Yeah. But you could, you could tell like this is this is a cool moment. The Razor um, Jeff Jarrett Jarrett. match was actually pretty decent as as well. So those guys had good chemistry. Um, Jeff Jarrett in that time period in the Intercontinental Division did really good work, and I I hope that I didn't undermine that by downplaying the rest of the card. Um, Jarrett was a solid performer, and him and Scott Hall's chemistry was great. My first exposure to the Roadie character, I heard about him. I'd seen highlights, but I'd never seen him in action. And Road Dog, he's he's great. So. Up and down, yeah, this this WrestleMania is it's obviously one of the worst. And watching it back, it it's an easy watch, but yeah, it's it it really it doesn't feel like the biggest show of the year, really, besides like the all celebrities and things, but as far as in-ring quality and me- like it being a memorable show, it really it really falls short. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those cases where there's so much talent on the show. You know, you look at Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker and all of these names that we associate with a high level of quality, and they were all either in the wrong programs or just in impossible situations. And I think it really speaks to the lack of roster depth and the lack of creative direction. Yeah, I'm just, while you were talking about it, I was reminded of, man, Taker had a match on this this show. It's that bad. It's the worst worst match of the night. I didn't want to think about it. The, and the ending is so terrible with Kama and running away with the urn and all the, the, the comically large urn as well. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> this was definitely a step, unfortunate step down. This is the only WrestleMania I, I had on VHS. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> it, I probably got it in a bargain bin or something like that. But I yeah. knew as soon as I bought it, I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. Why didn't I buy 96? I don't I don't know what I was yeah. thinking. So, um, but it was definitely fun to to go back and watch this, and really cool to see how the the wrestling business has changed so much since then. You know what's interesting is this is the WrestleMania that I probably have the strongest memories of as a child, and that really just speaks to Vince McMahon's partnership with Fox at the time. You know, um, they Fox had, had in the early '90s picked up Saturday Night's main event after NBC had finished with the series. And for WrestleMania 11, they eventually ran the condensed one-hour version, which just had the Sean Diesel match and then LT and Bigelow. But they promoted WrestleMania 11 everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't matter what time of day, what show was on. There was commercials. There was advertising for WrestleMania 11. So for as bad as the in-ring product was, it might have been the highlight of Vince's marketing, at least for that time period. And the the amount of celebrities certainly helped with that too. Yeah, uh, that def- definitely had a hand in it. I'm, I'm sure the steroid trail being over, just like that that cloud is lifted from Vince McMahon, so now he can just kind of quote unquote get back to work type yeah. of thing. So yeah. I, I bet that had a huge a huge part of it. 
All right. Well, we're just about out of time. But before we sign off and call the podcast, each episode, we share our hidden gem picks of the month. It can be films, music, albums, or whatever you want, video games. But uh, yeah, usually I'm, I've been picking a lot of music albums, and this month is no different. I'm, I'm going to start us off with uh, two albums that are ones I still listen to a ton. Uh, one is Funk Junkies Injected. It's a rap rock group. Good old 90s had a lot of rap rock stuff. Uh, this is this was a, a really, really good band that was very underrated. This was probably their most well-known uh, CD and hit. One of the songs was actually on the Tommy Boy soundtrack. I think that's the only their only claim to fame. So if you're a rap rock fan, I highly suggest checking out the Funk Junkies. They are I think an Arizona local band. So they're very good. Also, Hum. Gus, I don't yes. know if you've heard this band. Yeah, yeah, never yeah, yeah, checked. Yeah. Yes, this album is amazing. <laughs> Never heard this album. It's called You'd Prefer an Astronaut. This was an album I had no idea existed until until I got to college. Somebody showed it to me. I was like, wow, how did I miss this one? Fantastic. I also have music. I'm going to go with they're they're not quite as niche, I suppose. I suppose more people would know this if you're listening to any sort of metal music. So I'm going to go with a debut, which is uh, Strapping Young Lads. Heavy as a really heavy thing. It does exactly what it says on the tin. Devin Townsend records pretty much the entire album by himself. Devin Townsend is quite the interesting character. If you've never heard of him before, it's worth the Wikipedia. Uh, There may be some not safe for work stuff in there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's incredible extreme style debut album uh, mixture, kind of industrial thrash, even some like death metal in there, to be fair. So that was his, his first album at that point. And then a last album is White Zombies. God, what's it? Astro Creep 2000. I can't remember the full title. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to look it up yourselves. But if you've ever heard White Zombie, you'll know this album because it has more human than human. It has Supercharger and it has the Ecstasy one as well. All of his biggest hits are on this. And this is the last album they did before they split up in a couple of years later after this, but last main album that they released. And it's really, really good groove kind of again kind of more industrial heavy stuff so like like with the wrestling a lot of transition going on with music for the heavier side Mm -hmm. for the strapping young lad album uh, i know laura did a write-up on that album over on 25 years later site.com so check that out if you're interested in that album andrew well you guys both scooped me one each i had hum and white zombie written down (laughs) so while gus was speaking about white zombie i just quickly did a google search and realized that even though this doesn't qualify as a hidden gem because it's a very well-known film the basketball diaries came out in april of 95 okay i would would consider that a hidden gem Okay, um, you know that to me, it's one of my quintessential '90s movies. It's very early in his career, Leonardo DiCaprio. It's one that people—I don't know if you haven't revisited in a while. It's not the easiest watch, but it's certainly a great film. All right, some excellent picks. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe we'll share the, our picks uh, beforehand so we don't yeah. choose each other's uh, albums because <laughs> there's a there's a bunch of stuff that from this uh, from this month that I probably could have said. Uh, KMFDM had uh, Nile. Yeah, is, uh, I had that too. Album, so wasn't I? I don't listen to it enough to really justify talking about it, to be honest. But it's definitely good. Oh, okay, I've listened to it a ton. I that's another one. I'm like, I don't know if I would consider that as a hidden gem. One of the songs was on the Mortal Kombat soundtrack, which yeah. is 
fantastic, but that was my rule for not including that as a hidden gem. But lots of good stuff uh, to include every month. So um, I will always uh, note those in the show notes every month, though. So that will wrap up this edition of 25 Years Later, the Obsessions podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast feed on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find more in-depth film podcasts called the Criterion Collectors hosted by Tim Rosenberger. Be sure to follow 25 Years Later on Twitter at 25YLSite. And you can always support us on Patreon. Andrew, what's the URL for Patreon? It's just 25YL. There you go. Be sure to check that out for more great content. And thanks again to my guests, Gus and Andrew, this month. Appreciate you guys taking the time to be here. Cheers. Thank you so much for having us. Yep, anytime. Thanks to everybody for listening. Join us next month where we'll talk about Die Hard with a Vengeance, Braveheart, and everything else happening in pop culture in May of 1995.